Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to History Hack. If you didn't know by now, we are the revolution. That means we're sharp, witty, lots of fun, but it also means that we're essentially the peasants in Les Mis huddled round a table in the corner of the bar with no money. If you enjoy the show, please do support us. We have a Patreon account by which you can donate a small monthly sum in appreciation of what you're hearing. Alternatively, we have Ko-fi in which you can just do a one-off donation as a thank you if you particularly enjoy a certain episode. Either way, we massively appreciate all of your support. Hope you enjoy the show. Hello, welcome to another episode of History Hack. I'm so happy. I have my Alex today. It is me and Alex. We haven't done one in so long and I'm so excited to get rocking and rolling with that Alex talk to us. You're got. also happy because we're in World War II today as well, which is why you're like bouncing off your office walls right now. Two for one. Two yeah. for one. <laughs> today we have, and we've been, uh, we've actually, we've been trying to get this one together for a while. And finally, finally, all the tech demons have got away. Uh, and we have with us Philip Cracknell, who's a historian and battlefield guide. Uh, his thing is Hong Kong during the Second World War. He's written a book called The Battle of Hong Kong now, but he's got a new one out, which is called The Occupation of Hong Kong. Uh, and this is brilliant for me. Hello, Philip. Hi. <laughs> But I'm excited because we very often don't uh, don't head east, do we, Alex? No, we don't. We don't do enough Far East stuff. We usually just grovel at the feet of Rich Frank or James Scott. So this is really exciting. Um, so I think maybe before we do anything else, should we ask you, Philip, tell us about Hong Kong before the war arrives in Hong Kong. What does it look like? How does it operate? OK, in December 1941... Um, when the war broke out, Hong Kong had been under threat from the Japanese Empire for quite some years. Um, it was Hong Kong was not at war, um, so the lights were on, the restaurants were full, the theatres were full, and yet over in UK, um, the war had been on since September 1939. So Hong Kong was a kind of slightly unreal place. Um, yes, the country was at war, but so far it hadn't affected Hong Kong. But Japanese army was um, just across the border and had been threatening Hong Kong since really about 1938. Okay, so... We talk about the battle for Hong Kong then because it's often overshadowed, I think, by Singapore, isn't it? But it was yes. hotly contested. So how did it play out? Singapore was considered by the British as the impregnable fortress. Um, it was it was like the Gibraltar of Asia. And when Singapore surrendered in February 1942, it um, the army that surrendered um, was an army of 80,000 men, British, Australian, Indian, um, a variety of troops, Malayan, uh, volunteers from Singapore and Malaya. Um, and they surrendered to a Japanese army of 35,000 men. So they surrendered to a much smaller army who had outfought them, outmaneuvered them. Um, and, and of course, I'm sure the British garrison had no idea that they were surrendering to such a small force. In Hong Kong, it was the other way around. Hong Kong was an expected defeat. It had become a strategic liability. 
Um, it was seen as an isolated outpost. Um, it wasn't, ex- it, it wasn't expected for one moment that it could, um, defend itself against Jap- the Japanese army. Um, whereas Singapore, it was the other way around. So Singapore, an unexpected defeat. Churchill described it as the worst catastrophe um, in British military history, the biggest capitulation in British history. I'm really interested in the experiences of those who are actually fighting the battle. I mean, at one point you would think they would be successful, but were they truly successful or not? It was, I guess not, because the, the battle was lost. Um, but they were successful in the sense that they put up a good fight. Um, they lasted out for a long time. Churchill always looked, Churchill looked at Singapore, sorry, at Hong Kong and described Hong Kong as, um, having not the faintest chance of being able to defend itself or of being relieved if attacked by the Japanese. So Churchill had effectively written off Hong Kong. Did they fight well? Yes. I mean, they were, as I mentioned earlier, a smaller garrison facing a much larger army. Um, because Hong Kong had effectively been written off, um, it, it had a paucity of aircraft, of naval assets, of manning, of equipment, of anti-aircraft guns, of howitzers. Everything was in short supply. Because Hong Kong was not a priority. The people on the ground, do they see themselves as not a priority, though? I'm guessing no. No, I think the answer is no. I mean, um, if they were, it would have completely destroyed morale if they knew um, how Churchill saw uh, Hong Kong. In other words, you know, their chance of being defended or relieved. Um, So I don't think they felt that, but they must have realised that they had very few aircraft. I mean, the RAF in Hong Kong was really like almost a joke. Uh, There were only five aircraft and they were all biplanes. Three of them. Yeah. I mean, three of them were torpedo bombers. Two of them were reconnaissance flying boats. The two flying boats were, uh, they were called walruses, um, walrus flying boats. They were normally, um, they were normally catapulted off a warship, um, used for reconnaissance ahead of the fleet, and then brought back and lifted up onto the ship by a crane. So absolutely no use against modern Japanese fighters. Mm. And when on Monday, the 8th of December, when the Japanese did attack Hong Kong, the first thing to happen was a massive attack involving more than 30 Japanese aircraft on Kai Tak. And then so that's five, the day after Pearl Harbor. It um, it was actually almost simultaneous. Oh um, wow! So they mounted two big operations like that. Sorry, I'm so ignorant of the Far East in the Second World War. So they mounted two operations like that at the same time. They did, in fact, more um, because they attacked the Philippines, Singapore, Malaysia, Hong Kong, uh, the naval base at um, Hawaii and various islands in the Pacific, all more or less simultaneously. Um, but the reason why I say Monday, the 8th of December for Hong Kong, mm-hmm. and the Pearl Harbor was tacked on the 7th, is because between Hong Kong and Hawaii, you have the international dateline. So, okay. The, yeah, so the Americans all think the war began on the 7th with the attack on Pearl Harbor. Um, in, in Britain, we talk about the Pacific War beginning on... Monday, the 8th of December. And it was only the day before that, on Sunday, the 7th of December, that um, mobilization began. Um, and, and the troops went to their, to their battle stations. So if we go back to that Sunday, the 7th of December, the military commander, Major General Maltby, was sitting in St. John's Cathedral in Hong Kong. Having just read the lesson, he returned to his pew. And then while he's sitting there, an orderly comes into the church, his footsteps heavily resonating on the stone floor of the cathedral. Uh, a, a whispered conversation takes place. Um, the, the, the military commander, Major General Mokby, leaves the church. 
Cathedral, um, and um, a meeting of the Defence Council is convened, and following that, a state of emergency is declared, and the troops go to their war stations. Next morning, Monday, 8th of December, 8 o'clock in the morning, Kaitak is attacked, and shortly after that, the Japanese army crossed the border from China into Hong Kong. So Hong Kong falls. We're, we're going to leave that there because that's another book. This book is about the occupation. Uh, Alina, and no, the first thing Alina's going to want to talk about is civilians and civilian experience. Oh, okay. she knows me way too well. Way like, too yeah, well. but I don't like the military stuff in the war. It bores me. Talk to me about the people. Go on. It, it's, no, it's true. I mean, it's like the, the, people are being murdered. You've got the murders of prisoners, nurses, civilians, and it all happens straight away. Are these acts, orders, for example, in the case of officers not being able to control their men, or is there a deeper meaning behind it? I think the Japanese army was a very brutal army. They were very brutal to their own men. Um, they were, very, they had a history of brutality in their operations in China. They would use captured prisoners for bayoneting practice. So I think some of it was an institu- institutionalized brutality. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes they were direct orders and there were also customs. I mean, for example, the Japanese in the battle for Hong Kong. Almost never, I think maybe there are two exceptions, but almost never took prisoners who couldn't walk. So if you were non-walking wounded, you were going to be put to death. And that would be done quite brutally, um, not even with the courtesy of a bullet, very often with bayonet, uh, uh, sorry, bayonets or beating with rifle butts. So the Japanese did not, you know, pick up um, wounded prisoners and carry them out on stretchers. They didn't even treat their own wounded very well. Um, so, yeah, and you're absolutely right. The, the atrocities started pretty quickly, um, and that included the killing and raping of European and Chinese nurses in hospitals. Can I just throw something in here really quickly? I mean, this is something that we talk about very often. Actually, we don't talk about it very often, but within my circles, we do. For example, the way the Soviets treated Poles, Lithuania, Latvians, Eastern Europeans, etc. Europeans, and obviously how the Germans treated uh, their prisoners of war and, and civilians and everything. We don't talk about how the Japanese treated the 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 Chinese, the Koreans, the Singapore. Poreans, I think that's the right way grammatically of saying it. But we we just don't talk about this, and it's so utterly horrific and so utterly brutal. If you think that the Soviets and the Germans were bad because they were, I'm not saying they weren't, they were. This is just the next level, and it's just beyond horrific. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And you know, I mean, like the the, war, the battle in Hong Kong only lasted three weeks. Um, the first week was fighting in the mainland. And at that point, prisoners were treated quite well, but not many had been taken. Mm-hmm. Um, but as soon as the Japanese army invaded the island of Hong Kong, um, right through to Christmas Day, it was atrocity after atrocity. Um, I mean, the most famous case, I suppose, is probably um, the hospital at St. Stephen's College, Stanley. St. Stephen's College was seen as the Eton of the East. And in fact, it's only about a kilometre from where I'm sitting talking to you right now. Um, and the college had, had be, the college main school building had been turned into a temporary military hospital. And so there were European and Chinese nurses. Um, there were military uh, orderlies and there were a lot of patients um, who had been wounded in the battle. Um, and hospitalized. And, you know, one of the cases, um, talking about individual cases, one of the, one of the cases I really kind of, well, I, I, maybe like is the wrong word, but stands out is that of a chap called Sergeant Major Tutti Beck, who was wounded, but managed to swim from Repulse Bay to Stanley, which is a, a hell of a distance. Um, came ashore, <clears throat> badly lacerated, wounded as well. Um, and he's admitted to the hospital at St. Stephen's College. 
he's a bit surprised to find his uh, wife, Eileen Begg, is working at the hospital. He thought she, being a military nurse, he knew she was um, nursing, but he thought she was at the main military hospital on Burn Road. Anyway, it's um, it's uh, Christmas Eve. It's the 24th of December. And the fighting at Stanley has really intensified. Close quarter, um, close quarter fight, fighting happening all through the night. And the next morning, the Japanese broke into the hospital and ran amok using bayonets to kill patients in their beds and also bayoneting medical orderlies. Um, Eileen Begg helps her husband get out of the bed, helps him hide under the bed, under the mattress, and get clambers un, 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 uh, under the bed with him. And although she died, he uh, can still remember, or still remembered, and um, described it in an affidavit for war crimes trials after the war. He can remember the bayonet coming through the mattress and appearing just above their heads. And then his wife, Eileen, a very attractive lady, um, was one of seven European nurses working at that hospital, one of five who were raped. And of the five that were raped, she was one of three who were raped, mutilated and killed. It just, I want to hope that this level of brutality could not continue long term. So Hong Kong has fallen. It's now occupied by the Japanese. What's the immediate aftermath like? Does, when does this taper off? Please, God, tell me it does. And, and what does the beginning of occupation look like? The beginning of occupation, um, well, starts on um, Christmas Day. Mm-hmm. Um, the uh, By this time, to use a hackneyed expression, the enemy were at the gates. Um, the Japanese troops were within you know, a short distance of the central uh, the main town, which was called Victoria in those days. Um, and um, the the major general in charge of the um, British troops in Hong Kong had asked the commander in charge of troops on the North Shore, how long can you hold your existing front line? And the answer came back one out. So the decision to surrender was made. And very quickly, troops were disarmed, ordered to return to barracks. Uh, the Navy uh, returned to the Royal Navy dockyard. The Army returned to the main barracks in, in Victoria. Um, civilians generally remained where they were. Um, most civilians... Um, uh, civilians obviously fall into a few categories. You have yeah. um, British, American and Dutch civilians, mm-hmm. uh, women and children, and men who weren't who were older than the combatant age um so uh these people um were working as nurses um working in civil defense like air raid precautions um demolition corps food control so all of these civilians had some kind of role they were involved in um and then of course there were the chinese the chinese made up about 98% of the population. And um, they were also, they were probably worsely treated um, by the Japanese than even the British, American and Dutch, the so-called enemy civilians. And then there were a group known as third nationals. These were Portuguese. um, um, They were sort of countries that weren't hostile to Japan, like Britain, Holland and um, and America, yeah. um, but they weren't Chinese, so hence they were called third nationals. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. People most likely would have been sent to an internment camp. Am I correct? 
Um, they were. The civilians, um, again, American, British, and Dutch, um, were sent to an internment camp, but not initially. Initially, they didn't know what to do with them. I mean, there were, there were a lot of them. There were about 3,000 of them, uh, men, women, and children. Um, so they stayed where they were for about 10 days. Um, where they were meant the hospitals they were working in, um, the, uh, food control offices or other offices that they were carrying out their civil defense duties at. Um, and then on the 5th of January, 1942, um, the order is given that all enemy civilians must report to a parade ground in the heart of Victoria City, Hong Kong. So they turn up, the Japanese are overwhelmed by the number. So instead of registering them and taking all their details, they just gather them into groups of about 200 and march them down to the western part of um, of town. Um, and they're put into short-stay hotels, which were really nothing more than brothels. Uh, they're dirty, they were vermin-infested, um, and they were crowded into these short-term hotels. Um, you know, like these hotels don't have even rooms. They have cubicles. Um, they're normally four or five stories with balconies at the front and back on each floor. They're f- dark and dingy inside. Uh, they're infested with rats. Um, the cubicles have one bed, one sort of wash type, old fashioned type of wash basin, an armchair. Um, and five or six people would be put into these cubicles. So some had to sleep on the floor. Um, you, you, you know, only one or two would fit on the bed. Um, so pretty miserable conditions, um, starvation rations, hardly any food is provided. Um, and they remain there until the 21st of January. From the 21st of January, they start moving the civilians to Stanley internment camp. And the, as for the military, they've already been moved to prisoner of war camps. Um, they were moved on the 30th of December. What does Stanley internment camp look like when they arrive? It's, um, Stanley is a peninsula. Um, and the main features on it are Stanley Prison mm. and St. And Stephen's College, the so-called Eton of the East. Um, so it, um, the prison is a modern prison, um, built in the late 1930s. And that was not used as an internment camp. That was continued to be a Japanese prison, but the rest of the prison compound consisted of, um, accommodation for the prison wardens and their families. And these were used, um, to house or to billet the, in, the civilian internees. And likewise, all the buildings in St. Stephen's College were also used to billet internees. So they were put into kind of modern concrete buildings, bungalows, a school, staff bungalows in the school, the school science laboratory, the classroom blocks. Um, but they're crowded into these, um, these buildings. Um, male and female, um, uh, mixed together, children with grown-ups, um, strangers, were, many of them are complete strangers, um, to each other. Um, many of them have nowhere to sleep other than the concrete floor or the wooden floor of their billet. Um, and again, the food, um, that's provided is woefully short. I mean, the, in the first few months of internment, the calories per, um, per day were something like, um, 1.3, 1. 1. uh, 1,300, 1,400. So, you know, this is a kind of slow starvation diet. Um, in kind of reasonable conditions, but, you know, a large number sleeping on the floor. And, you know, as the worst thing was the overcrowding and, of course, the confinement. 
someone who gets 1,300 calories a day in theory with good nutrition can survive. However, I'm assuming this was very low quality food with absolutely. Is that not what they basically tell you to eat if you're on like a, you really want to lose weight? That's roughly what Weight Watchers or Slimming World or whatever will try and get you to do about 1300 calories a day, but good calories, like you say. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. So things like uh, avocados and fresh vegetables and fruit and all this kind of stuff. The reason I'm bringing this up is because also the prisoners in concentration camps and things were also put on such good calorie i'll say this in quotation marks nobody can see me but quotation marks good good um calorie diets but this was such bad quality food that there's no nutritional value you don't have the vitamins and the minerals and everything else that you actually need every day which again brings about starvation and i find that very interesting but just to add to this i want to know a little bit more about what their typical day looked like i mean what did they have to do did they go to work did they have to get up how how did it look could they write letters what was possible in this camp? When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Um, they couldn't write letters for quite a while. I, I can't quite remember when they were allowed to write letters, but probably 18 months after they were interned. Um, and likewise, they weren't receiving letters um, until quite a long time after they'd been interned. And when they did receive letters, they were often a year out of date. Um, The the day started with roll call. Um, Most of the, I mean, like, we were talking about the diet just now. I mean, like, for them, breakfast would be rice um, and maybe watery watery vegetables. the, the 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 two meals a day breakfast and um and, and the sort of evening meal um and very lucky if they had any meat at all um so malnutrition became rampant uh people suffered from berry berry from pellagra and various malnutrition related well, this um, is the illnesses. thing, like you get the massive decline in, in dental health, wouldn't you? And it would just yeah. be a knock on sort of reduced immune systems. Disease. Yeah. So. Yeah. The lucky ones were the ones that had brought money with them. But there were a lot who had nothing on them apart from what they were wearing. Um, so those who had money or jewellery, um, at least they could trade on the black market. Um, and buy additional food um, or buy cigarettes. Cigarettes became a, a kind of common currency. So you could have your haircut and pay for your haircut with cigarettes. Mm. Um, there were within the camp, I'm probably jumping to one of your questions, but um, there were people within the camp who were, do, who were kind of doing the black market trading, so-called king rats. Um, and these black market traders were very unpopular because they were profiteering and, and benefiting from the difficult conditions that people found themselves in. So, you know, women were selling their jewellery, their wedding rings, things that, you know, meant a lot to them and they didn't want to give up. Um, people were also asking the dentist um, to remove their gold fillings or gold gold teeth um, because they, they could be sold through black market. Uh, watches were sold. Parker pens were sold. Um, watches, basically kind of cash, um, 
cash, jewelry, watches. Um, and it, the, you know, the, the, the black market traders, um, although they were condemned by many, it was also appreciated by most that had it not been for them, many would have um, become very ill, suffered ill health, very serious ill health, or even it could make the difference, the difference between life and death. So they were kind of despised, but also um, it was realized that what they were doing, they were taking a big risk as well uh, by trading with the, with the guards Um but what they what 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 they were doing did actually help people survive. So they're internees as well, who just I guess have the savvy to get in with the guards and start getting stuff brought in. That's how they manage to place themselves like on a an elevated level within the camp hierarchy. Correct. Yeah. Um, and some of them are women. Some of them are men. Um, they um, they had their own contacts amongst the guards. Um, the Japanese were harder to um, work through than, for example, the Formosan guards. Um, the Formosans, Formosa obviously is, um, I'm sure everybody knows, is um, present-day Taiwan, and the Formosans spoke Chinese. And there were quite a number of Chinese internees. Um, I know that sounds odd because I, I mentioned enemy uh, aliens, British, American, Dutch, but the Chinese wives of um, enemy um, civilians had um, a choice of either going in with their husbands um, and, and possibly their children um, or remaining out of camp. Uh, but if they remained out of camp in occupied Hong Kong, the question was how would they make money? How would they feed themselves? But there were some that decided to remain out in order to try and protect their property, their home. Um, and many of them, if their home hadn't been looted, and most homes were looted um, during the battle, um, if their home hadn't been looted, they would they could only exist by selling their furniture um, in order to raise money to buy food, and in particular rice. I think Alina's just waiting for some sound to die out. Oh, okay. I can yeah, see her right. No, no, no. There's a, there's a dog the... barking. I don't know if you guys can hear it. When I'm no, we're good. We don't. We can't hear it. So you can go. Interestingly, talking about dogs, some people brought dogs into Stanley Camp. Um, it's surprising in a way that the Japanese allowed that. Um, some people managed to get hold of chickens um, that you know they were coupled with a um, a male bird uh, could produce eggs. Um, and, um, you, you know, you'd think that a, a dog's life would be pretty dangerous. I mean, the same thing happened in POW camp. Some of the, some of the officers brought in dogs, including the military commander, Major General Maltby. Um, but I believe some of the dogs disappeared. Yeah. Oh, no, don't tell Alina that. No, she's broken now. Quick, change the subject, change the subject, Alina. I'm changing the subject very quickly to something because obviously a lot of people in the camp, they they spoke Chinese. They had lived in Hong Kong and things like that. So escape, I'm saying this in theory because Mm -hmm. coming from my own experience on working from things like this, in theory, escape beyond the camp should have been easy. So were there any escape attempts or any repatriations at all? Um, there were, but I wouldn't say it was easy because there was barbed wire all around the camp. So, you know, that area of Stanley, uh, the Stanley Peninsula, which included St. Stephen's College and the prison and not much else, um, was kind of, you know, was closely guarded by, um, centres, barbed wire and so on. Um, and also it's very difficult for a European to escape in an Asian, from an Asian prison camp because you step, you obviously stand out as a European. Um, and remember in Hong Kong during the period of occupation, most of the, uh, Europeans have, have been interned. Of course, there were Germans, um, other nationalities that were not, um, Italians, um, and others who were not considered 
um, enemy civilians. Um, but nevertheless, the prospect of escaping, I mean, where do you escape to? You know, you're yeah. on the island. I guess, of, like, it doesn't yeah. matter how well you know Hong Kong, with a white face in the middle of a war. That's a problem. You can't yeah. melt away, can you? Yeah. But nevertheless, people did manage. In the military POW camps, there were quite a large number of escapes, remarkably, um, in the first six months of military internment. In the civilian camp, there were really only two escapes um, by seven people. Um, the first escape was by a lady, uh, a lady called Gwen Priestwood, and a police officer who um, one night uh, slipped under the wire, went down, um, got down to the road um, that led to Stanley Fort, walked along the shore at night, went up onto the battlegrounds, the hills behind Stanley, um, and eventually made it to the north shore of the island. Stanley's on the south side of the island. So they make it to the north shore, probably somewhere around Shao Kei Wan, um, and they managed to persuade uh, a junk captain to take them across the harbour. Um, so they get across the harbour, they're helped by Chinese communist guerrillas. Um, and they make their way to, um, that part of free China closest to Hong Kong. And again, surprisingly, there was, um, a city in China called Wei Chow, uh, which was part of free China, not occupied by the Japanese and only 70 miles from Hong Kong. But that, you know, that, that distance had to be accomplished largely on foot mm. um, or, or boat along rivers for part of the way. In terms of, so most of the Europeans were interned. The people who weren't, what is life like for the inhabitants of Hong Kong under occupation? Um, I'm thinking of things like, are there air raids? Um, there were air raids, and but they didn't really start immediately. The first air raids took place in October 1942. So that's um, yeah. 10 months after the surrender. Um, and then there was a bit of a hiatus in air raids. Uh, but by 1944, they're very frequent. And in 1945, there are masses of them. Yeah. And in fact, on one of these air raids on um, 16th of January 1945, um, there were over 100 aircraft involved, something like 138 in the morning and 158 aircraft in the afternoon. Um, and most of the, um, the air raids were carried out by the U.S. Army Air Force operating from China. Um, but on that particular date, 16th of January, um, the U.S. Navy joined the air raids on Hong Kong. And this was the first time that the U.S. Army Air Force and the U.S. Navy had um, attacked at the same time. Because they don't, there is no U.S. Air Force till, is it 47? So it's... There is no U.S. Air Force, only the U.S. Army Air Force, who fly different types of aircraft. Mm. They're flying B-24s, uh, Liberators, B-25s, um, and... They have Mustangs as escort aircraft for their bombers, um, Warhawks, whereas the U.S. Navy are using different aircraft, smaller aircraft, uh, Helldivers, Avengers, um, Hellcats. Um, and they come from this massive fleet, an armada of ships uh, operating in the South China Sea. But unfortunately, U.S. Army Air Force and the U.S. Navy didn't talk to each other. So they didn't know they were both conducting a raid at the same time. And the U.S. Army Air Force were being briefed by British military intelligence. Um, so they were, they were, they were told where the, you know, where the prisoner of war camps were, where the internment camps were. The U.S. Navy had no idea where, which ones were, um, POW camps or internment camps. So unfortunately on that particular day, uh, Stanley internment camp was um, accidentally bombed by U.S. Navy aircraft and 14 civilians in one of the former staff bungalows um, were killed in an air raid. And meanwhile, 
the air raids were aimed at um, ports, infrastructure, and very often the shelling, the the bombing went wide. So there were large um, numbers of civilian casualties, collateral damage. Um, so it was very, I mean, the air raids were very terrifying when they occurred, but they also kind of provided hope um, for prisoners in the, in the POW camps. They they provided a huge morale boost. Um, they they could hardly contain their excitement. And even in Stanley, although it was scary and people did die, um, generally that it you know it, it was a matter of huge excitement seeing these things and realizing that the the end of the war was coming. So can you talk us through how Hong Kong was actually liberated and what was the atmosphere like once liberation actually came? Well, I suppose it all started with a B-29 flying over Hiroshima and dropping the first atomic bomb known as Little Boy from a height of about 31,000 feet to its destination height of 2,000 feet, exploding over the city. Uh, Truman... um, sends a message to the uh, emperor and government of Japan um, that they must surrender now or face a reign of fire, the like of which has never been seen before. But the Japanese are in no hurry to surrender, despite the incredible damage and number of deaths uh, caused by the first atomic bomb. The second atomic bomb, um, a few days later, Hiroshima is set on 6th of August, 1945. On the 9th of August, Nagasaki is bombed. And at about the same time, Russia, rather opportunistically, declares war on Japan. And the Russian army advances at lightning speed across northern China, a province known as Manchuria, um, occupied by the Japanese. And But even then... The war council is split and the military men don't want to surrender. Um, but it was these things that led to the surrender, the Russian, in, the Russian declaration of war, the two atomic bombs. And the Japanese had no idea how many atomic bombs the Americans had. Actually, there were very few and it would have taken a long time to build more. Um, but on the 15th of August, the emperor makes a speech. Um, broadcast on radio. Um, his troops are all lined up all over the captured territories in the Far East and in the home islands in Japan. They're wearing their best uniform. They're wearing white gloves and they're listening to the first time, for the first time, to the voice of their emperor. And their emperor is seen as a kind of divinity, a, a godlike being. Yeah. Um, he speaks in the ornate language of the court, a language and a, 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 an accent that is sort of unfamiliar. Um, but he's asking them to do the unthinkable. The enemy has developed a new weapon. Um, we must suffer the unsufferable. Um, he didn't like to use the word surrender, but they used the words, they will accept the um, demands set out in the Potsdam Declaration, which called for unconditional surrender. So uh, the Royal Navy um, is taken a bit by surprise by the uh, rapidity of the uh, Japanese surrender. Um, The main Royal Navy Pacific Fleet is down at the Admiralty Islands in a place called Manus Island, near today Papua New Guinea. Um, And they're quite a long way from Hong Kong. So they've got to steam up to Hong Kong Meanwhile, in Hong Kong, there's a question, who's it going, for the Japanese, who's it going to be returned to? Um, is it going to go to the Americans, who aren't very keen on the idea of British uh, continuing their, with their colonies? Is it going to be returned to Britain, to whom, it, to whom it belonged before the war began? Or is it going to go to the nationalist Chinese, to Chiang Kai-shek? Um, Anyway, the, um, the Royal Navy steam up to the Philippines. Um, by the 29th of August, 
their um, their fleet is standing off Hong Kong. Um, and of course, another large element of the fleet is pro- um, progressing towards um, Japan. It's on Philip, the 30th, isn't it? On HMS Welk, because he witnesses the surrender on Tokyo Bay, doesn't he? Yeah, he was there. And, and actually, oddly enough, so was my dad. Um, oh, wow. My dad was a, yeah, my dad was, well, not on that ship. He was yeah. on another destroyer, um, HMS Undaunted. Um, and he was in Tokyo Bay at the time of the surrender and had been part of the Pacific fleet involved in the supporting the American landings at Okinawa and Iwo Jima and so on. Um, but anyway, the, um, the Royal Navy or that part of the Pacific fleet that had been, uh, designated with the role of taking repossess- repossessing Hong Kong entered the harbor, um, on the 30th of August, 1945. And it was like Hong Kong was a ghost town. Um, there was such a shortage of everything during the occupation. There were no cars. There were few trams. Uh, most people walked. Um, there was no electricity. Uh, the population had been reduced from about 1.6 million to only 500,000. The population consisted of people who were emaciated, ghostly figures. Um, it, you know, it was like entering a ghost town and the Royal Navy came in with their air, they had two aircraft carriers, a battleship, two cruisers, and an array of destroyers and minesweepers. So they enter the harbour somewhat cautiously, but with aircraft, um, Hellcats from the naval cap from the Navy carriers flying almost at rooftop height. Their job was basically to create shock and awe, uh, to impress the Japanese. Um, so the aircraft is zooming in at rooftop height, zooming over the harbour, erupting up into the skies, um, and, 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 and the, and the, and the warships, uh, the admiral in charge, Rear Admiral Harcourt has transferred his flag from the carrier Indomitable to the cruiser Swiftshire. Um, and immediately they start tying up on the Kowloon side of Hong Kong and the, and on the island side. And they send landing parties ashore. They start um, uh, rustling up the Japanese. Um, and after a while, the prisoners of war are released. Um, the Japanese are interned. There's about 9,000 of them. And over a matter of weeks, uh, the prisoners of war are sent home, uh, both the, uh, the civilian internees and the, the military POWs. What do you think the legacy of the Second World War is for Hong Kong? I think, you know, when the when the governor, the governor in Hong Kong during the time of the battle was a chap called Smart Young. Um, so he was governor and commander-in-chief. He'd already started to do quite a, a bit of work in terms of dealing with corruption, which was quite rife in Hong Kong before the war. Um and he'd also started to do something towards creating um, a more diverse diverse society. Um, before the war, Hong Kong was not exactly diverse. Um, there were so many glass ceilings. If you happen to be Chinese or Indian or Portuguese or from the wrong social class, there were all kinds of glass ceilings that were difficult to get through. Um some of the Chinese businessmen had prospered and created big companies. Um, but, um, but it wasn't a very fast society. So when the, the, the governor who'd been imprisoned throughout the war, he returned to Hong Kong in, I think it was around May 1946. Um, and up until that time, Hong Kong had been run as by the a British military administration. Mm-hmm. But when the new governor came in, he started to um, create more a more democratic um, form of government in Hong Kong. This wasn't really appreciated by um, the colonial office in London. And so Sir Mark Young only lasted one year and was then replaced um, by a more conservative governor and commander-in-chief. What the legacy is, hard to say. I mean, um, I suppose the the liberation ensured that Hong Kong came back to British rule. Um, 
rather than American, rather than uh, nationalist Chinese. So, you know, the, 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 leg, the legacy, the visible legacy that one sees today is the military cemeteries at Stanley and Saiwan, the, the rows of neat Commonwealth War Grave Commission tombstones. Um, another legacy, again, in terms of visibility, is all the pillboxes in the new territories along the so-called Jindrinkers line and the pillboxes around the beaches of Hong Kong Island. Even the batteries, uh, there are gun batteries still there. All the emplacements are still there. You can even find the trenches are still there. Um, you can even, on some of the battlefields, when I first used to go out to explore the battlefields of Hong Kong, you could pick up bullets. Uh, you could see grenades lying on the ground, live grenades, and um, shells, bullets, bits of uniform, steel helmets, rifles, even aircraft, crashed aircraft. And a lot of this still remains a kind of reminder of the past, a visible legacy. Philip, thank you so much for coming on to talk to us about Hong Kong and the Second World War. I never come out of one of these Far East, Far East World War II episodes without feeling completely traumatised. Um, but it is, <laughs> yeah. we do absolutely need to cover it. Um, so thank you for coming on and giving us such a comprehensive picture of Hong Kong under occupation. We will absolutely put the book in the History Hack bookshop, buy it from us, because then independent bookshops get a cut, Philip gets a cut, we get a cut, and Amazon get nothing, which we like. Brilliant. Okay, well, it's been a great pleasure, and thank you very much for giving me the opportunity to come on your show. Pleasure. Our incredible guests give us 45 minutes of their time to join us and talk about their work or their new book. This is just a small taster. As a result, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest books, you can support them, and you can support us on History Hack. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep going and bring you more top-of-the-line guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack or search for us in the shop section. Thank you so much for your continued support. We really appreciate our listeners and supporters. So make sure you get down to the bookshop and grab yourselves a new book. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.